today. Please pray with me before we begin. Father, clear our minds and ready our hearts as we open up your inerrant and holy word. And as the truths speaking in it um, seep deeper into our hearts, I pray that you would shape us and that you would um, revise our worldview, the way we view life, the way we understand ourselves and you, the purpose of it. And I pray that as we do so, you would make the light of Christ shine brighter and brighter and his cross clearer and clearer, that we may be those who follow you um, because we've been redeemed by your blood. Thank you, Father, uh, for this privilege of studying your word. Help us do so well now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so friends, we're going to continue today in our series of the book of Acts. Currently, we're in Acts chapter 13. And we see here the same thing that's been going on throughout the book of Acts from chapter 1, and that is the early church continuing to preach the gospel, to preach Christ to the ends of the earth, to the people around them, okay? And the passage we're about to read today, when you read it, is going to have tons of different kind of sections or themes in it, and it's going to be hard to kind of understand the unity of the whole passage unless we first understand the heart of the one who's kind of driving this passage forward, okay? And that is the heart of the Holy Spirit. When you read the passage here in a bit, you're going to notice that the Holy Spirit is kind of all over the story, okay? He's kind of pushing the narrative forward. He's guiding the characters onward. And to make sense of the passage, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it that the Holy Spirit wants? What does he desire? And it's the same thing he's been desiring throughout the New Testament, that is to see Jesus Christ receive every ounce of worship that he deserves. Okay, that is what he is jealous for. And I know that sounds obvious, but keeping that in mind, I think, as we study the passage, is really going to help us make sense of why the Holy Spirit calls the church here in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 to do certain things that he asked them to do, things that, by the way, the Holy Spirit is still calling us, the church today, to do still. Okay, what are those things, and what does it mean for us, CCC, to be a church that's attuned to the Holy Spirit and His heart and His guidance? Let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 12, verse 25, so the end of chapter 12, to chapter 13, verse 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, w they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Okay. Because the Holy Spirit in this passage, we clearly see, is jealous for Jesus to receive all the worship he deserves. He calls the church, one, to gather more worshipers globally and rebuke counterfeit worship powerfully in a way that's worthy of the gospel story. That's our three points for today. Because the Holy Spirit is jealous for Jews to receive worship, one, he calls the church to gather more worshipers globally and rebuke counterfeit worship powerfully in a way that is worthy of the gospel story. All right, let's move on to our first point. The Holy Spirit called the church here in Antioch to gather more worshipers globally. So, we just read the story, and it began with two people, Saul and Barnabas, coming home from this long mercy ministry trip that we saw them take earlier in chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. Uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 11, a church in Jerusalem was experiencing a famine. So uh, Saul and Barnabas left their home church in Antioch to go here to bring them supplies. Okay? And now in the beginning of chapter 13, they, they're back home in their home church in Antioch. And in verse 2, the story skips to this scene where Saul and Barnabas was worshiping God together with other Christians in their home church in Antioch, where all of a sudden, right in the middle of the worship service, verse 2 says, you see the Holy Spirit interrupting it. And the Holy Spirit delivered a message to the people there. Now, whether this message was delivered verbally through one of the prophets there, or maybe it was delivered through kind of this unison sense of calling that everybody there experienced, we don't know. Either way, the message itself was clear. Go to verse 2. The Holy Spirit called this church in Antioch to set Saul and Barnabas apart for the work that he prepared for them, which we'll see later in verse 4, that is to go to this island called Cyprus and preach the gospel there. Okay? Before we get to verse 4, I want to talk about the details of the sending process itself in verses 1 to 3. Okay? Because when you're studying... Narrative literature, details are very important, isn't it? Because main points, commands, um, warnings, rebukes, in narrative literature, they aren't made with one-line sentences, right? They're made by the details in the story, like when the big bad wolf pretended to be Red Riding Hood's grandmother, the point there is that sometimes crooked wolves look like good people, so don't naively trust first impressions. That's the point. But that point wasn't made with a sentence. It was made by the details of the story. Same with narrative literature in the Bible. The message is found in the details. And the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something here through the details of the story. What's he trying to say? Well, there are two important details that I want to point out here. Notice, one, who the Holy Spirit spoke to and when he spoke to them. Okay, let's talk about the first detail. Who did the Holy Spirit speak to here? Look at the names of the people mentioned in verse 1. If you read it carefully, you'll notice that the author here, Luke, 
very intentionally details everyone's ethnicities. And he did that for a reason. Okay, first on the list, you have Barnabas and Saul. They're Jewish. There's no need to specify there because Barnabas and Saul were main characters throughout the story of Acts. So people knew that they were Jewish. He didn't need to repeat that. But then you have Simeon, called Niger, the text says. Now, just a note, that word back then didn't mean anything derogatory. Back then, it was used to describe people who came from a place near a river called the Niger River, a river that's now located in a country that we call Nigeria, okay? The point here that this passage is trying to tell us, there's an ethnic detail about where Simeon came from. So you have two Jewish people. You have one man that came from a country we now call Nigeria. And then who's next? You have Lucius of Cyrene, it details again. Another ethnic detail, you have a Cyrenian here. And lastly, you have this guy named Manaen who wasn't given an ethnic detail because he didn't need one. His name was Greek enough. It's like if I told you Sam Simanjuntak, you immediately would know he's Batak. I don't need to specify that, okay, because we know that. So Simeon's, uh, Manaen's name itself was ethnic detail enough. Okay, you have Jews. You have a man from uh, Nigeria. You have a Cyrenian. You have a Grecian. What's the point of these details? The Holy Spirit's trying to tell us that the gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for all cultures. Okay, that's the point here. Now, connect that detail with the second detail we see in this passage. When the Holy Spirit spoke to these people, it was during a worship service, verse 2 says. And by the way, that word worship in verse 2 is liturgeo, which is the word where we get liturgy from, describing a Lord's Day actual worship service. Okay. Connect these two details with one another. The Holy Spirit called His church to send people out on mission trip, one, while they were conducting a worship liturgio service, two, filled with people from all different tribes, tongues, and nations. What do you think the Holy Spirit's trying to say about the purpose of missions? It's to gather worshipers from all cultures, from tribes, tongues, and nations. The purpose of worship is to gather more worshipers for Jesus globally. That's the point of missions, okay? So the church here is called to send her people away, her best people, by the way. Barnabas and Saul, they weren't slouches. They were heavy hitters. The church sends her people away on mission trips. Why? To gather all different people from all tribes, tongues, and nations to worship. As John Piper, a preacher that you may know, famously quotes, missions exist. Why? Because worship doesn't. The point of missions is to gather worshipers. And immediately, now, think about this, you have a tension, don't we? A tension that we all got to deal with, our church too, if we want to be tuned to the Holy Spirit. Because on one end, you want to reach your culture, right? Or if you're in a large urban setting like Jakarta, you want to reach your subculture because inevitably that's going to happen in large urban settings, okay? Um, so you got to contextualize. There's a quote that captures this well. It comes from a Western scholar who wrote about his experience of doing missions in a particular village in Africa. And because his team contextualized the gospel well there, he said this, the people in these villages sensed in their hearts 
that Jesus did not mock their culture. And because of that, they beat their sacred drums for him. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. The gospel is for every single culture out there. So on one hand, the church has got to learn to contextualize because there's not one culture that has monopoly over the gospel, okay? But on the other hand, remember, the Holy Spirit spoke to a diverse group of people when? During a worship service. The end goal of this is so that people can worship Jesus. So as we creatively think about how to reach different cultures for Jesus, on one hand, we got to ask ourselves, are there perhaps things about our faith, about our doctrine, about our practices, that if we change them too much, it'll actually detract from worship of Jesus? You see? Because there will be certain doctrines and practices in the Bible that certain cultures may find more offensive than others. Do we then just have the right to delete them altogether, to change these doctrines and practices to please the culture we're reaching? What if the culture says, you know what? We don't like sermons. I don't want sermons. I want Sunday mornings to just be 10 songs, a prayer, and we're done, and we're gone. What do we do then? Do we just cancel sermons? (laughs) We can't do that. We can't not preach the Word of God. We got to preach it clearly, rightfully, accurately. Now, how long the sermons are, what language you preach it from, you know, all that is contextualized from culture to culture. But you can't change every doctrine and practice and end up becoming a servant of the culture because you're not a servant of the culture, you're the servant of Jesus. There's a tension we feel here that every church, every Christian, really, you and I, in an individual level, need to wrestle with as the Holy Spirit enmeshes his heart with ours. How do you communicate to your diverse group of friends, family members, co-workers that come from many different cultures, demographics, walks of life, how do you communicate to them that Jesus is for them but not below them? That Jesus wants to redeem them and their culture but by no means bow down to it? How do you wrestle through that? And putting in the effort to fine-tune your approach, that's not just a pastor's job or some sociologist's job. That's what it means for you, Christian, to be driven and led by the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. That's what he calls you to do. That's spiritual work, okay? And that's exactly what the church in Antioch did here. Because they're attuned to the Spirit, they're burning with the passion to deliver the gospel in a way that makes sense to the culture in their So in verse 3, they fasted, they prayed, they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sent them off, where? On a mission trip to this island called Cyprus, one of the most culturally diverse urban islands at the time, by the way. So picture Cyprus back then as Singapore today. It was our Singapore, okay? It was buzzing with commerce. It was filled with people from different cultures. You have Egyptians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Assyrians, Persians. Everyone was there. So they went there. And in Cyprus, Barnabas and Saul met a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which leads us to our second point. Because the Holy Spirit is jealous for Jews to be worshipped. He calls the church to gather more worshipers globally. Second point, he also calls the church 
to rebuke counterfeit worship powerfully. Okay, go, go to verse 4. You see that Saul and Barnabas reached a place called Seleucia, which is the seaport on the east side of the island of Cyprus. And they started to preach the gospel there on the east coast, and then they moved on southwest, verse 6 says, to this place called Paphos. Now, Paphos was a large city in Cyprus. I think it was even the capital of the island, if I wasn't mistaken, for a time. And the reason why it was called Paphos is because in the city, there are a lot of people here who worship the Syrian god. What happened there? I have no idea. A Syrian goddess uh, called Paphia, okay? Hence the city's name, Paphos. And in the city, they met a proconsul, verse 7 says. Now, what's a proconsul? A proconsul is a Roman governor that was tasked by the emperor to govern a particular region. Okay, so this guy was a governor of Cyprus. And his name was Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, verse 7 says. That's another interesting detail to keep in mind for later. A man of intelligence, Sergius Paulus. And in verse 6, this governor was accompanied by a Jewish man, a false prophet, it says, named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, who most likely was in Sergius's kind of political advisory team. Okay. Think about the picture here. There's another Jewish man on this island named Bar-Jesus who looked like Saul and Barnab- Barnabas, who were also Jews, who spoke like Saul and Barnabas, who probably dressed like Saul and Barnabas, who is somehow associated with Jesus' name like Saul and Barnabas, But yet, verse 8 says, he's a magician. He's a false prophet. What's the lesson here? Well, perhaps it's a similar lesson to what we learned about Little Red Riding Hood earlier, that not all crooked wolves look bad. Some of them look like good people. That sometimes you'll come across people who claim to belong to Jesus, who use Jesus' name like Bar-Jesus, who look and sound like those who follow Jesus, but actually they're false prophets who lead people away from the gospel. So here's a second call that the Holy Spirit is giving us, that as the church gathers worshipers for Jesus globally, every now and then you're going to encounter false worship, counterfeit worship, and we have to address that powerfully. But... How can you tell who they are? If they look, walk, talk, and claim the name of Jesus, how can you tell that they are false prophets? Again, the details matter. Look at how Saul rebuked Bar-Jesus in verses 9 to 10. In verse 9, Saul, who's now named Paul, by the way, if anybody's wondering when that switch happened, it's here, chapter 13, verse 9. And why did that happen for contextualization purposes, uh, Saul was trying to reach non-Jewish people, so he thought it was better to use his Roman name, Paul, and not his Hebrew name, Saul, okay? That's why he's using the word Paul. So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 9, looked at Bar-Jesus intently, the passage says, which means sharply, assertively, and he looked them in the eye, and in verse 10, he said, you son of the devil, <laughs> See the irony here? Bar-Jesus, whose name meant son of Jesus. Paul's saying, no, you're not. You're son of the devil. 
And afterwards, Paul continued to give three different accusations toward Bar-Jesus, and the last one is the most important one, the most revealing one. One, he calls him full of deceit. Two, called him a villain. Lastly, third, he said, he makes crooked straight paths. That if a crooked path here is when he's trying to get money with crooked ways, a crook, pretty much. So, Sergius is trying to gain money from twisting the gospel. Why? Because if Sergius Paulus, the, um, the governor, were to believe the true gospel, he'd probably kick, Serg- uh, kick this guy off his team, which then he'll lose his income. So he's trying to twist it and keep his job, right? That's what's happening. That's the telling part there. How do you know that someone is a crooked prophet and not actually a preacher of the gospel? Here it is. Look at what they're actually selling Look at what they're selling. I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, the government shut down a junior badminton competition. I think it was in Jakarta. Why? Because the company that sponsored this badminton competition was actually a cigarette company. So you would go to the place and you looked around, you know, the rafters, the dividers of where they sat, the walls, you, everywhere you would see advertisements for this particular cigarette. Now, I'm not trying to discuss whether or not smoking is sinful or not, okay? That's not my point right now. My point here is that the government saw beyond the optics. They saw beyond the facade. Because at face value, that event presented itself as if it was promoting health and exercise for children. But if you just took a second and looked beyond the optics, looked at the actual content being promoted, you would see that the end goal there is not health and exercise at all. They're trying to sell cigarettes. Now, I can't quantify this precisely when it comes to church or Bible study or ministry. All I can say is try to look beyond the optics. Try and look beyond the spiritual phrases, the Christian lingo, the pious and humble behavior that may be offered to you at face value because anyone can sound spiritual and use Bible verses. Look at the actual product that's being sold. Sometimes, like Bar Jesus, all of that stuff might just be distractions from the actual sell. Use discernment and wisdom and ask yourself this question. What's the end goal here? What am I actually being offered here? What's the final prize? Is it Christ? Is he the object of desire and beauty in this community? Or is he just a stepping stone to get to something else? I've used this analogy before, but it may be appropriate here. When you find something to be beautiful, that means that thing to you is the end goal, not a stepping stone. Why do you listen to music? Why do you pay so much money to go to a concert? Music doesn't pay the bills. Music doesn't put foot on the table. You listen to music because music is the goal. It's beautiful to you. It's not a stepping stone. When you go to a church or a ministry or a Bible study, ask yourself, is Jesus beautiful here? Or is he merely useful? What am I being sold? What is the object of desire? Paul saw through Bar-Jesus' optics and filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 9 says, he cursed him. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he cursed him. Isn't that interesting? We associate the Holy Spirit oftentimes with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, which are all true, and all of us need to embody more. But here, the Holy Spirit was associated with wrath and anger and justice. 
toward those who dare use the name of Jesus for personal gain. Second point, the Holy Spirit is jealous for Jesus to receive worship globally, but he also wants um, to separate Jesus from false worship. Okay, so he used Paul to curse bar Jesus, but as we move on to our third point, he did it in a way, he rebuked bar Jesus in a way that's worthy of the gospel story. What do I mean by that? Let's go to our last point. Go to verse 11. Look carefully, again, at the actual curse. The, the, uh, the, the, the indictments was in the first part of verse 11, then the actual curse was in the second part of verse 11. Paul said, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Now, this feels like something mean to do, right? You're making somebody blind. It's actually the opposite. It was actually a very fair and loving thing. Okay, why? First, look at the curse. It was about blindness. This is fair because what was Bar-Jesus doing this whole time? He was keeping Sergius, the proconsul, the governor, in the dark, right? He was trying to blind him from the truth. So now, he'll be blinded, you see, with physical blindness because he caused somebody else spiritual blindness. It's fair. It's just. It's not mean or unfair. Okay, the lesson here is that when you encounter a false prophet, the first order of business is ask yourself, what rebuke is fair right now? When you think of doctrinal errors, if you think that they all, all doctrine errors deserve the same intensity of punishment, that means you're not attuned to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of justice, not a spirit of unnecessary harm. What's fair? I saw a young believer once just learning the Bible, talking theology, and he, he said something that was kind of off, you know, and it wasn't a big deal. Everybody knew he didn't mean what he said. He was talking about the Trinity from Matthew chapter 28, when you're called to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while he was talking, it just slipped out of his mouth. He accidentally uh, called the Trinity as they, implying there's three gods, right? Not, not one God. And I just remember this other Christian who was theologically astute just pounced on him and said, heresy. <laughs> you know, that's social Trinitarianism. You know, you're a heretic. It doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It said baptize them in the name, singular heresy. <laughs> no, she's like, bro, calm down. Like, you're way too excited about shooting bullets here. Like, relax, okay? He didn't mean that. Don't treat all errors the same. Use discernment. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of fairness, not a spirit of unnecessary harm. But even if you meet somebody like Bar-Jesus, who we categorize as like deserving of all wrath, right? So you see somebody who's just maliciously trying to capitalize on the gospel. Even then, even then, look at how the Holy Spirit handled it. Look at how Paul closes the curse here at the end of verse 11. He said, and now, behold, right? Bar Jesus, the worst of the worst. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, Paul says, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Just for a time. Not forever. For a time. Now, all three commentaries I consulted on this said the same thing. This is really interesting. He said that every time our author Luke, right, who recorded the book of Acts, every time Luke writes about a curse that lasts 
just for a time. It's always intended for the person's repentance. Think about the Gospel of Luke, right? In the very beginning, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Remember, he was told by an angel that his wife will birth a child, but he didn't believe it because she was so old. So he spoke against the angel. What was the curse? He was made mute, fair. It was fair. And he was made mute forever? No, just for a time, which then led him to repentance. All three commentaries said this, and I saw that, but I still wasn't convinced. I I thought it was a bit of a stretch exegetically. But then all these commentaries agreed again and pointed me to a second thing to another person who Luke recorded as being cursed with a temporary blindness and then eventually repented. Can you think of who that person might be? Paul himself, the one who's cursing bar Jesus here with momentary blindness in Acts chapter 13. Remember in Acts chapter 9, Right? The story is that uh, Saul, he was still persecuting the church. He was still killing Christians. The risen Jesus confronted him in his travels. He was blinded, and then it says he needed to be guided by the hand because he couldn't see. What happened to Bar-Jesus in verse 12? Darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Here's what Daryl Bach, a commentator, said about this moment. He said, in a sense, Paul is judging his former self, former self here. As a magician is led away, one can only imagine Paul recalling the moment he himself was led away after seeing the Lord and being rendered temporarily blinded himself. Another older scholar named Saint Bede actually taught on this passage as well, and he said this, that Paul here, and I quote, remembering his own case, knew that by the darkening of the eyes, the mind's darkness might be restored to light. The Holy Spirit didn't go all out. He didn't. The Holy Spirit used Paul to rebuke Bar-Jesus in such a way, even Bar-Jesus, in such a way for his repentance and in such a way that would have reminded Paul of his own past, of his own story, of his own sins. Saul, mind you, didn't just trick people away from the gospel like Bar-Jesus did here. He murdered them. He massacred them. And yet he was forgiven. (laughs) How? By the blood of the one he now so vehemently defends. Remember your past, Christian. Remember why you're defending the cross so powerfully in the first place is because you were saved by it. It's because all your sins were washed away by it. Remember, not one of us here deserve to approach God. We don't. Only prideful Christians would use the same hammer for every situation. Only prideful Christians would use the same size of hammer for every situation and go all out all the time. Don't forget your own gospel story. When you encounter counterfeits, let the cross both embolden you to defend the faith, sure, 
But my goodness, let it remind you of your own unworthiness, of our own past, and of the mercy that we received. Don't forget that. And when you ponder upon this cross, when you're moved by it, you would desire to defend it more in a loving way. And, and, and when, you, when you walk in that tension, look at the result. Look at what happened in verse 12. Then the governor believed. The proconsul believed, it says, when he saw what had occurred. When you boldly yet fairly defend the gospel, when you powerfully yet graciously proclaim and defend the gospel for the purpose of somebody else's repentance, intelligent men, this was a governor, he was no joke, intelligent men like Sergius will see the difference between Christ and counterfeits. They'll see the difference between Christianity and mysticism. How? By hearing the logic that comes out of your mouth and by seeing the mercy that oozes out of your heart. That's how the Spirit works. Do that and persuade intelligent men that live in urban cities to the gospel. May we be such a church, CCC, attuned to the Spirit's desire, following His lead of gathering worshipers for Jesus globally and defending the faith with both fairness and mercy in a way that's worthy of the gospel story. And may the Spirit use us to do things in this city in which He decides and is pleased to do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are absolutely amazed by the fact that not only you would redeem sinners like us toward your kingdom as citizens of it, but also now using us to then proclaim this gospel of mercy and grace to others in this city. Help us, Father, walk the line between making it clear and contextualizing it to different cultures, but at the same time, not ever making Jesus bow down to any culture, and also defend the faith in a way that's fair, but also loving and kind. We don't have the ability to walk these very thin ropes, but we pray that you'd be pleased to use all the imperfect and sinful efforts that we have for your gospel work and for your kingdom. Please, Father, uh, shape us more and more. Fine-tune us to this reality as we ponder upon the gospel of Christ and the salvation that's been purchased on the cross for us um, by his work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.